With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, two-time NBA MVP Steve Nash explains why he's joining BR Football and Turner Sports to appear on its Champions League coverage starting later this year. We'll have some traditional elements in that there's still going to be uh, you know, pre-game, halftime, post-game content, uh, you know, studio show or analysis, and do other traditional things, interviewing people who are interested in the game and interviewing obviously some of the talent and players, present and past. But, um, you know, I think we also want to create a lot of content around the game that is directly targeted for social media. And Sebastian Abbott joins me to talk about his terrific new book, The Away Game, which chronicles the largest soccer talent search in history involving prospects from all over Africa and funding from the Qatari government. One of my main characters is playing in sort of a playmaker role opposite Coutinho, and so they're sort of battling uh, for ascendancy in the game. And then actually when they, you know, the, the, the African kids go up 1-0, and, you know, in the second half, the Brazilian coach throws on this skinny baby face striker who nobody's ever heard of. But that would change pretty quickly. <laughs> and it turned out to be Neymar. All that and more coming up. Turner Sports takes over English language Champions League coverage in the U.S. later this year. And our guest today will be part of that coverage. Two-time NBA MVP Steve Nash is a lifelong soccer fan and a solid player in his own right. And he will be a contributor for Bleacher Report football, including programming that airs on Turner. He'll have segments with special guests, soccer fans, and other athletes. Steve, congratulations on the new gig, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pretty exciting time for a uh, diehard soccer fan. I know how diehard a soccer fan you are. We've actually had you on the podcast before talking soccer. This particular job, how did it come about? Well, it's uh, it's a dream come true. I, I, you know, obviously when you play basketball for a living, um, you know, you don't expect to get the opportunity to be involved in in soccer telecasts and broadcasting. Um, but I got a call from uh, David Finocchio, who uh, created a Bleach Report, uh, which is a part of the Turner family, and um, their UA for coverage will be um, branded. Bleacher Report football. So uh, he gave me a call and said he had some some new ideas and plans on the way he wanted to cover soccer for, for Bleacher Report. And uh, one of those things was to try to reach a larger and new audience. And I think you know that was the genesis of, of my involvement. And what was exciting to me also is the type of content they want to try to capture. You know, um, in depth 
personalities and and uh, insight into some of these guys that you know are, are world class athletes and household names in much of the rest of the world, but but probably aren't as or under known by the general population of the U.S. So not only that, but also a, an incredible strategy to reach as many people and and the way they consume content these days across all platforms is. Has made you know not only a green job because of I get to watch a lot of soccer and and be a part of the content, but also because of the conversation and the way they're going to create the content and, and share it in so many different ways that are curated for people's behaviors and the way they consume content these days. So, really excited for it. So I know it's still pretty early on in the process. There's a lot more announcements that Turner and Bleacher Report are going to make. What sort of things will you be doing for Turner and Bleacher Report that you know of as of now? Well, I mean, we'll, we'll have, you know, some traditional elements in that it'll be, you know, there's still going to be, uh, you know, pre-game, halftime, post-game um, content and, and, you know, studio show or analysis. But I think we'll also, and do other traditional things, interviewing people who are interested in the game and interviewing, obviously, some of the some of the talent and players, present and past. But, um, you know, I think we also want to, you know, create a lot of content around the game that, is directly, you know, targeted for social media um, and Bleach Report platform. So, you know, the it's a it's a, it's a wide open kind of a canvas, so to speak, at this point. But a lot of ideas, a lot of fresh new approaches. Um, you know, the Champions League is interesting. Uh, you know, if, as, as sort of your sole football property because it's it's largely Tuesdays and Wednesdays and. Uh, midday in the United States, so it's a little bit of a different property, but at the same time, it's you know the greatest soccer competition there is on the planet. So it's uh, it's a pleasure to to cover it and to dig into some of these famous historic clubs and these personalities and players that are you know every bit the you know the the sporting superstars that we have here in the United States. But we'd love to share more in depth with some of the the stories that these guys have and and some of the talents that they possess that like I said, are, are perhaps underappreciated in this part of the world. Now, is it your sense that you're going to be spending at least some time in Europe for this work in addition to time in the U.S.? You know, largely the studio will be here in L.A., so that'll that'll be, you know, most of, of my kind of presence will be here in L.A., but I, I'm sure there will be a time where we travel. I'm not sure, you know... <clears throat> If I could say that we have a travel schedule started yet, but you know, I bet you there's a time we're in Europe, and I bet you there's a time we're in different regions, but uh, but predominantly here in in Los Angeles. And one thing that I always find a challenge, but it's as a journalist, it's something that is possible to do, especially when I write for Sports Illustrated magazine, is to produce content that is interesting to both hardcore soccer fans and people who are sort of new to the sport or, or just diving in. Is it your sense that you'll be able to, to achieve that balance and reach both audiences? It's a great point. I mean, obviously that is the ideal type of, you know, storytelling or content that we want to create or moments where they're, you know, not only interesting to, and, and, informative to, a you know, lifelong or, or, you know, somebody who's an incredibly, uh, a tuned soccer fan, but um, 
you know, also is accessible for somebody that's new to the sport or is, or might be interested. So that, that is a challenge. And, you know, hopefully sometimes we can hit the nail on the head there and provide content uh, that is interesting to both, you know, types of uh, audience member, but you know, the, the reality is maybe we'll have to do some of that and some that reaches, you know, the, the really, uh, you know, genuine fan who's been following the game for a long time and we'll have to do other content that is, more about teaching those who who might have an interest or or otherwise unaware of you know all the qualities the beautiful game possesses and all the things that made me fall in love with it so you know i think we'll have a great team and we'll probably be one part experimental but we'll be pretty buttoned up there's some really talented people involved that are you know really good at what they do and are are shaping this in a way that i think it, it is new and fresh but at the same time it's it's lending on success both in the digital world, but also in, te- in television. So I'm really excited to work with, with the team and to create obviously content and stories and analysis, analysis of the game that reaches, you know, people that want in-depth um, professional analysis and others that want to hear stories about why this game is so beloved in the rest of the world. Now, just in case there are any listeners on this podcast who don't know about your soccer background, could you fill them in a little bit on, on why sure. this isn't surprising to any of us who know you well that you're going to be doing this in, in the soccer space? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my uh, my dad, my parents are from London. My dad played you know conference football in England and played in the professional league in South Africa for a few years. My first word was goal. I grew up. <laughs> You know, playing uh, you know in an, in an English household on the west coast of Canada, and you know, to uh, mom and dad who are from Tottenham and big Tottenham supporters um, throughout my family. And uh, my brother played for Canada. Must have been I think thirty, thirty-five times. Played in the English Championship. Played in the USL for many years. Um, so I, I just grew up, you know, immersed in the game. Have an incredible you know, love for the game, still play twice a week, played this morning and uh, um, just absolutely, a, a you know, obsessive soccer fan here. So it's, it's incredible. I get to, you know, do it as a, as a profession now and, and dig in and try to obviously spread the, my love of the game and passion for the game with a lot of people that obviously have the same passion and love and, and experience with it, but also those who maybe don't and, Hopefully we can bring a lot of new fans to the table as well. It might seem a little crazy asking a two-time NBA MVP this question, but is it fair to say at this point in your life that soccer is a greater passion for you than basketball? Yeah, I don't know if that's any secret. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I do, <laughs> I do uh, still consult for the Warriors. I still, you know... Uh, you know, I'm involved with the Canadian national team program. So I do have my ties to basketball and I still love the game, but, um, you know, I've part of the ownership group for the Vancouver Whitecaps and, uh, Real Mallorca in Spain. Um, you know, and, and now obviously working with the BR football team, you know, soccer is just a huge part of my life, a huge and genuine part of my every day. So whether I, I would be doing this for a living or not, uh, I'm watching a ton of soccer and, and just I'm obsessive about the game and love it. And uh, this is kind of a dream come true for me. Now you mentioned you're a Tottenham fan. We are recording this 
before the Tottenham Juventus second leg and actually posting after that game. So I, I wanted to get your sense, even if we don't know what the result is going to be, do you think Spurs will be able to keep everyone together on that team beyond this season, including Harry Kane and Deli Alley? I obviously have high hopes. Um, you know, we'll see how everything sh- shakes out this season. I think, you know, and as, and, and as as important as it is to keep Harry Kane is to keep uh, the manager. Um, obviously, Maurizio Pochettino is an incredible manager. He's had a vision, uh, you know, a, a way of teaching and of building a you know a project and a program here at, for for us fans at Spurs that. It's been incredible, not only on the sixth largest budget and largely the youngest team in the Premier League much of the last four years, but his ability to teach and connect and to build um, that that culture and fabric and that camaraderie between the players and the squad and has been incredible. And being able to link the squad with the academy, with you know guys like Kane and, and Winks and others that have come through the academy is it's just been like a dream come true for a lifelong fan. So he's as important as anyone. Obviously, I, I say you could argue Kane's a top five or six player in the world at this stage. But you know, there's so many great players. But he's been incredible. Um, so to lose either of them, it would be a disaster for us. At the same time, um, I have high hopes. You know, we have a new stadium. I think we're just rounding into a, a maybe a level higher than we played the first half of the season, which will hopefully allow us to stay in the Champions League and. You know, we performed well in the Champions League this year. So there's a lot for these young players to, you know, to play for. And I, I know our, our budget is lower. We have a slight, well, a largely uh, a lower wage bill than, than the top five teams. But we do we do have high bonuses. And I think that uh, Daniel Levy's looking to, to break or rearrange our, our wage structure here within reason. So hopefully that's just enough to keep guys, you know, incentivized and excited about the project along with all the other ingredients that we have going for us now. Was that answer long enough in depth? Enough that was that? fantastic. <laughs> okay. I, I, I could keep going for an hour. <laughs> Part of a recruiting pitch to keep those guys. But maybe, maybe someday we'll do a podcast that's an hour long and just entirely on Tottenham. Um, in terms of you look around Europe at the other big stories and maybe the biggest this year, obviously, was Neymar deciding to leave Barcelona to go to PSG for insane money. And PSG is looking for one thing, that's to win Champions League. And here we are. Obviously, we're recording this before the second leg against Real Madrid, but PSG is really up against it. And Neymar's just had surgery and is out for uh, up to three months, uh, which is going to bring it up pretty close to the World Cup for him, unfortunately. Do you think Neymar made the right decision by going to PSG? Well, it's, you know, these decisions are personal. So from the outside, I would have loved to have seen him stay in Barcelona. He had a great thing, obviously, uh, with a team that has proven this year to have a, you know an incredible balance and focus. Um, he, he really is, you know, a top, top player in the world. And for him to play with... You know, Messi and Suarez and some of the others is is I mean something that'd be hard for me to say was you know is not the right place for him. But you know, look, he's uh, an individual and he's going to have his own goals and dreams and aspirations. And you know, maybe it's financial, maybe it's to to be the star of the show, maybe it was to try a new culture. I, I don't know, but so I can't comment on on 
what was the right decision or what he should have done. Having said that, I would have loved to have seen him stay. I thought it was a, a beautiful thing they were building and to see them doing so well this year without him. You know, you can only imagine what was possible with him. Um, but like I said, it's a personal thing and I, I can't put into context what decisions went into it for him personally, his family and his team and, and how he came to that you know, need to move. In terms of other big European storylines on your mind these days, anything that stands out to you? Well, I mean, the sad one is not necessarily a, a you know a Champions League thing. Is uh, the passing of uh, Davide Astori this weekend? I mean, yeah. what a tragedy! I mean, by all accounts, he was an incredible man, a great teammate, great person, and for without warning for him to go in his sleep is. is very sad, but uh, to to talk about something obviously more positive, I think uh, you know we have the game is in such a great place. So many leagues, you know, the Premier League's back this season with you know five, six top teams uh, that are many and still in the Champions League. Obviously, La Liga is is incredibly strong. The German league in the last five years or so has really stepped up. Uh, you know, seeing Juventus and Fiorentina and. Um, even Roma, Lazio, and, and the Milan teams raised their profile back up again. Uh, you know, um, and then Monaco has been terrific, and PSG, Marseille is playing well again. Europe, there's so much football, so much good football in Europe, uh, whether it's Champions League or the domestic leagues, and and then of course we head into a World Cup. So, uh, I mean, there's no shortage of, of storylines. There's no shortage of of incredible displays and matchups. Uh, there's so many talented players and clubs that are run terrifically, um, <clears throat> which you know, which is key. You know, I think when you you know when you own a franchise, uh, the success of the franchise starts with the ownership group and their vision, their ability to hire talented people that can build. And you know, so many of these programs and clubs are getting it right this moment in time that it's, it's an exciting time to be a soccer fan well steve nash the nba mvp who is now the latest hire for bleacher report football and will be appearing on turner's coverage of uefa champions league later this year thanks so much for joining me uh, i had a great time thanks Grant. big thanks to steve nash for the interview our next guest this week is author sebastian abbott Our guest today is Sebastian Abbott, who's the author of the terrific new book, The Away Game, the epic search for soccer's next superstars. Sebastian worked for the Associated Press in Cairo and Islamabad, where he was the bureau chief, and this is his first book. Sebastian, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Um, First off, full disclosure, I'm friends with Sebastian. (laughs) Also, full disclosure, I love your book. (laughs) Thanks Uh, so much. Congratulations on it. This book is about Qatar's Football Dreams Project, which uh, I call on the back cover of the book a soccer-themed mix of hoop dreams and the sports gene. Can you explain what this book is about? Uh, So in short, the book's about the largest talent search in soccer history, uh, which Qatar launched about 10 years ago. Um, uh, They have, over those 10 years, they held tryouts for over 5 million young boys, uh, mostly in Africa. Uh, looking for soccer's next superstars. Um, you know, the program was started by uh, a Spanish scout who was the youth director at Barcelona and helped launch Messi's career. And it was just, you know, an incredible program, an incredible story. The The perspective I like to give people is that it was over a thousand times more selective in getting into Harvard. 
<laughs> this book starts with a scene in the river delta of Nigeria with, you mentioned him, Joseph Colomer, the former youth director of FC Barcelona. How did you and him find yourselves in this location? So actually, it's an interesting story about that opening scene. And so I'll give the readers, uh, the listeners a little bit of background on it. Um, it was This was 2007, and it was the first year of the search. And Joseph Colomer, the, the Spanish scout, he was in the Niger Delta uh, scouting. And he, he basically had two paramilitary police guards with him at all time, protecting him while he was scouting, because it was such a dangerous time in the Niger Delta. The, it was the height of the war between the militants and the government over the oil in the region, and kidnapping of foreigners was rampant. And so he had these police guards to protect him, and one of the locals uh, working on the program wanted him to come scout in his local fishing village, which was an hour's boat ride away through the Delta, and to one of the most dangerous parts of the Delta. And so Joseph Colomer is an interesting figure. He, he's basically been kind of focused on finding young soccer talent ever since he was a teenager himself. And so while other people would think this is mad, he actually agrees to go, but he shows up at the dock uh, with these two police guards, and the local says, you can't bring them with you. The militants won't let the police guards come. And uh, he says, don't worry, I've spoken to the militants. They want you to, to come scout. They've never had somebody scout their kids, not even a Nigerian scout, much less uh, one who worked for Barcelona. And I have a senior militant leader here who's going to personally escort you. And so there's a big debate about whether he should do. Again, he agrees, and he goes, and he gets in the boat, and he, he, he makes the trip, and luckily for him, never gets kidnapped. So I wasn't with him at, in 2007, but what I did was in 2015 when I was in West Africa doing research for the book, I recreated his entire trip. I went with the same militant leader in the same boat to the same village, and so I could recreate it as if I was there. Wow. Okay. So lots to talk about here. I guess what I would begin by asking is, what's the origin story of you in this book? How, how did this happen? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um Back in 2007, when the program started, I was living in Cairo, working for the Associated Press. And uh, I actually just happened to be jogging on the treadmill in a hotel gym one day. And they had these TVs in front of me uh, where you could I would watch European soccer matches while I was running. And one day there was a commercial that came on for this gleaming new sports academy in Qatar called the Spire. And it showed a kid juggling a soccer ball. And I've been a soccer fan my entire life. And so it piqued my interest, and I went and just Googled Aspire Academy. And it just so happened it was right around the time where they'd launched this Football Dreams program. And so I went to Doha for a few days um, to write an article about it when the first class of kids from Africa were there for their final tryout. And even then I thought this would be an amazing book or movie or documentary or something, but wasn't really in a position to do it at the time. Years later when I was living in Pakistan and I was kind of thinking about what I wanted my next project to be, I thought, I wonder if anybody's ever written a book about this Football Dreams program. And I looked and nobody had and the program had gotten bigger and even more interesting. And so I decided in 2014 to quit my job at the AP and, and set off on this odyssey. Well, I mean, the scale of Football Dreams, as you mentioned, was huge. The scale of this reporting project was pretty huge. Yeah. How many countries did you visit in the process of reporting this book? How, um, you know, how much time did you spend reporting this book? Yeah, I mean, it took me, you know, over four years to to the whole process of, of researching and writing it and editing it. And uh, you know, I visited over a half a dozen countries um, while I was doing the reporting. I spent um, 
you know, nearly five months in West Africa, um, in Nigeria, Senegal, Ghana, and the Ivory Coast. Uh, I spent, you know, uh, a couple months in Qatar. I spent a bunch of time in Belgium. Um, and so it was, it was a true odyssey. And it was just, you know, it was an amazing experience. I mean, the, and, and it was amazing in its diversity, you know, which is something I hope comes across to readers of the book that, you know, you have a place like West Africa, which is so radically different from Doha, which is so radically different from a little town in Belgium. And for me, it was an amazing personal journey to go to all these places. We'll get more to Belgium later on. Uh, the Qataris ended up buying a professional club in Belgium for some of their players uh, to end up going there. Um, we get to follow a few players in this book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, teenagers, including Diawando and Ibrahima from Senegal and Hamza and Bernard from Ghana. How did you build a relationship with these young players and get them to invite you into their homes, into their lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was difficult first to figure out which players to focus on because there were a lot of kids that had gone through this program um, at the point where I started my research. And so I had to sort of hoover up a lot of information about a lot of different kids to sort of figure out, you know, which ones made the most sense, which ones had the most interesting stories, but stories that wove together in a, in a way that, that made for a, a coherent narrative. Um, and over time, the, the, the players emerged. And then it was just a matter of, you know, reaching out to them and, and, and telling them, you know, look, I'm, I'm this journalist who's writing a book about football dreams. Um, I'd been touch, in touch with Aspire first in terms of doing interviews with them. So I could say, you know, I've, I've reached out to Aspire so they know I wasn't coming out in totally out of the blue. Um, but it was just a process of kind of interviewing them multiple times. I, I visited them all in West Africa. Uh, so I, you know, met their families. I met their friends. Um, and so I think they saw that commitment to tell the story, to tell, you know, not just the kind of, you know, upper level story that's appeared in some newspaper articles, but really get to the heart of, you know, what the program was about, what their lives were about, you know, where they'd come from, what had happened to them. And so I think, you know, a lot of people probably, if somebody takes the time to tell their story and you you feel like they're doing it in an honest, direct way, then, you know, they'll take the time to, to tell you about it. What was it like from your perspective for these kids coming from sometimes very remote parts of Western Africa, Mm -hmm. many different countries in Western Africa, um, not much wealth at all Mm -hmm. in these places, and then having them go to Doha to this Mm -hmm. Aspire Academy where, um, you know, this is one of the most state-of-the-art facilities in world sports? Right. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it was a total shock. I mean, even, you know, for players from Manchester United and Bayern Munich that go train at, at Aspire in the in the winter um, to get away from the cold weather in Europe, they're stunned. Yeah. You know, I was talking to the, the head of Aspire, who was the he, previously the head of strategy for Real Madrid. And the first time he visited, he went back to Real Madrid and he said, you know, we've been telling everyone that we have the best sports facilities in the world. We need to stop doing that because they're actually at Aspire. <laughs> and so you can imagine that if a if a player from Manchester United or Bayern Munich is blown away, a kid who's coming from, you know, a small town in southern Senegal shows up and just it's it's unimaginable. It's it's I say in the book for them it was a little like staring into the future. You mm-hmm. know, it was, you know, they get there and for a lot of these kids, they, they'd never seen an elevator. You know, they'd never maybe had hot water showers. Um 
you know, there was uh, a story one of the coaches told me where a kid gets in the elevator and he's standing there and the coach is kind of waiting for him to, to hit the button and he doesn't actually know he needs to hit the button. He just <laughs> thinks you get in the elevator and it takes you where you want to go. And wow. so, you know, every little thing like that was new for them. And so, and then coupled with that was this pressure that they felt that mm -hmm. they saw how amazing this place was. And so they were hell-bent to try and get one of the spots that would let them stay because all of them saw them saw this as their ticket out. There's a scene early in this book when the players are at the Aspire Academy in Doha and they get to meet Lionel Messi. Right. It reminds me of the scene in Hoop Dreams when Isaiah Thomas comes to see the kids at the Chicago High School. How would you describe that scene with Messi? Yeah, it was, you know, it was interesting. This was in 2008. So, you know, Messi was ascendant, but he wasn't quite, uh, you know, dominating the game in the way he is today. Um, you know, for these kids, it was sort of part of the fairy land, you know, fa fairy tale that they were in. You know, the Messi came because he was very close to Joseph Colomer, the scout who had found these kids. Messi actually led them in a training session. Um, and, and, you know, Messi knew very much what it was like to be discovered at the age of 13. Um, yeah, that was the age he went to Barcelona. Uh, so he knew what these kids were going through. Uh, and, and it was just a special experience for the kids. And, you know, Messi said to himself, said himself to reporters at the time that I think, you know, these kids are, are amazing. And I think many of them are going to have big futures in soccer. There's a couple other cameos in this book from stars that we know today quite well, mm -hmm. including a Brazil team with... Neymar and Philippe Coutinho yeah. that these guys beat? Yeah, I mean, that was an amazing story. And it's it's one every one of the kids will tell you when you sit down to talk to them. Because, you know, they were, this was uh, also in 2008 when they were in Doha for their final tryout. And, uh, you know, they get told one day that they're going to be playing Brazil's under-16 national team. And you can imagine that would be a pretty daunting thing to hear. <laughs> uh, a bunch of kids that weren't even a team. They were just a bunch of kids that were found across Africa and thrown together and had been playing for a few weeks and, and then needed to take on Brazil. And so it, it was interesting because when I spoke to the kids at the time, they said the real sort of powerhouse on the team, the sort of at the time, Brazil's team, who was kind of known was Coutinho. Mm -hmm. He was sort of seen as the playmaker. He had already kind of made a name for himself. And so, you know, they start out, and, and one of my main characters is playing in sort of a playmaker role opposite Coutinho, and so they're sort of battling uh, for ascendancy in the game. And then actually when they, you know, the, the, the African kids go up 1-0, and, you know, in the second half, the Brazilian coach throws on this skinny baby-faced striker who nobody's ever heard of, but that would change pretty quickly, and it turned out to be Neymar. And, and actually, something I don't mention in the book is that Neymar and Coutinho uh, then went on to Spain and won one of the biggest youth tournaments in the world together. Um, but I always think it's amazing that Neymar's – and this was his debut for the Brazilian national team. So it didn't take place against Germany or France or Argentina. It took place against a bunch of African kids who – just been found in this incredible talent search. I mean, it's pretty incredible, and it gives you an idea of, you know, we know Neymar and Philippe Coutinho now, mm -hmm. but in in terms of like the star making process and what happens with youth development, nothing is inevitable. Yeah, at all. Yeah. and I guess it, the idea behind this, Colomer's idea in, in doing this and having the ambition to do this, was he trying to say that something about 
if you're really good at spotting young talent, because these were talking about 13 year old kids, mm-hmm. that he thought he could spot a super a, a future global superstar superstars. And he had that talent, and it was possible to do that. Yeah, I mean, it was two things, really. One is that he, he felt like, you know, he'd been doing this his whole life. Um, he felt he had a good idea of what made a, a great player and could see that uh, in youth players better than others. Um, so there was definitely that. But then the other component of it was that he felt like uh, in Africa in general – there was a lot of talent that wasn't necessarily being discovered and being developed in the same way that you see in Europe um, because they don't have the same infrastructure of, of top academies. And so he, he came up with the idea when he was at Barcelona and he went on a couple scouting trips to, to Senegal and it kind of opened his eyes. I mean, he, he was being taken to not just the capital in Dakar, but to a bunch of little towns and, you know, would watch these kids play in front of them. And um, he just was astounded. And so, you know, he thought to himself at the time, you know, if you could somehow come up with a way to do a blanket talent search. He was just thinking about Senegal at the time. He mm-hmm. wasn't thinking more broadly than that because anything more than that seemed far too ambitious. Even Senegal, he thought, you know, this is a great idea if you could go out do a blanket talent search. But nobody's going to pay for that. Even the big clubs are probably not going to bankroll that. And so it was only when he met up with this ultra-wealthy Qatari sheikh that, you know, he pitched the idea, and the sheikh was like, this sounds great, but forget just Senegal. Let's do all of Africa. Ah. And so, you know, they embarked on this odyssey. I guess with Qatar, everyone knows that they're going to be hosting the World Cup in 2022. Uh, They didn't actually win the right to host that World Cup until 2010, Mm -hmm. and the Football Dreams Project started several years before that. Mm -hmm. What do you think Qatar was trying to achieve with this Football Dreams Project and putting so much money into it? Yeah, so the the origin, again, was there's this uh, super wealthy Qatari sheikh who's a member of the royal family. He's the brother of the emir of Qatar, the leader of Qatar, and was actually in line for the throne himself. But he's a passionate soccer fan and actually decided he was more interested in soccer than running his country. And so he, you know, spent a billion dollars to build Aspire um, and hired all these scouts and uh, coaches from Europe. And basically the first thing they did was hold tryouts for every boy in Qatar because that's one thing you can do if you have a small country like that and a lot of money. Uh, And they quickly realized they didn't have enough of a population to produce the kind of world-class team that... He had always dreamed. And so they, they quickly came up with this idea of going to a largely developing world, Africa, South America, to try and find young kids who they could bring to the academy on scholarship. Now, their stated reason for doing this was just to uh, have the kids from Africa and South America train with the countries and improve the level of training so the countries would be playing against much better players and then that would improve the countries who would then go on and make up the national team. You know, but Qatar has a long history of handing out passports to foreign athletes. I mean, they've done it in pretty much every sport you can imagine, you know, track and field, uh, volleyball, handball, chess. I mean, you know, it's, it's really across the board. And so while they didn't project that at the time, I definitely think part of their equation was, you know, if we find these amazing kids in Africa and we come and we train them in Doha and they're here for several years, well, it would probably make sense that some of them would want to then go play for Qatar. 
of the players who you followed closely for this book, who do you think had the most poignant story? Um, I think uh, the, the two two of the kids I follow both for me had very poignant stories um, uh, for different reasons in a way. Um, but I, I guess if I had to pick one, it would be uh, Ibrahima Drame um, from Senegal. Uh, you know, he's from a very small town in, in southern Senegal called Ziggenshaw. Uh, he had a very tough childhood. Um, his parents divorced when he was very young, um, and his father kind of uh, didn't really have the money to help raise the family, so it was all on his mom to raise him and his three siblings. Um, you know, soon after they split up, life got even worse for the family because they lived in a mud house that collapsed in a rainstorm. So they didn't really have a place to live. So they all went to live in one room uh, of uh, her mother's house. Uh, and it was just a difficult time. You know, his Ibrahima's older brother had to drop out of school to go work in the local port with the fishermen to try and just have enough money for the family to buy rice and cooking oil. And Ibrahima would also kind of skip school sometimes to go help. But his, his brother very much wanted him to stay. And so they were kind of pretty in, in pretty desperate straits. The, the one thing that was kind of a light in Ibrahima's life was soccer. And he would play at a little informal soccer school that his uncle started or, around the corner from where they lived. Um, and so, you know, when Aspire came and held this tryout uh, and, and Ibrahima was seen as a real goal-scoring force, as a striker, um, and he was selected to go to Doha, uh, you know, it, it meant so much to him and his family. He actually discovered that right before he left for Doha for his final tryout, that his brother was thinking about making this risky journey uh, over the ocean to the Canary Islands. At the time, hundreds of Senegalese were doing this and hundreds were dying uh, on the way. And Ibrahim actually said to him, look, I don't want you to go. I think now that I've been selected for this, I think the the entire uh, life of our family is going to change. And so it's just a powerful story to think about the pressure that it was on his shoulders and not just his shoulders. I mean, this is a story that you see if you spend a lot of time in, in West Africa amongst a lot of kids where they feel like and their families feel like, you know, if, you know, one of their kids can become a soccer star, this is the way out, you know, and, and, and that's part of the, the reason why the title of the book is The Away Game, is that, you know, these kids see this, see soccer as their only way out. So, you know, he, he left for Doha and he, and he had this, um, you know, huge pressure on his, his shoulders, his weight on his shoulders to kind of perform for his family. And I don't want to give away what happened for the, the readers, but, you know, he, he definitely had his ups and downs. But, you know, in the end, he was able to do more than his first family than he could probably have ever imagined. We're talking to Sebastian Abbott about his new book, The Away Game, the epic search for soccer's next superstars. There's a terrific cover photograph uh, on this book, Sebastian, um, and it's of two kids playing soccer on the dirt in Senegal. Mm -hmm. And in a very rare occurrence <laughs> uh, for writers of, of books, you shot this photograph. Right, yeah. And uh, it, it's really uh, a very memorable photograph. Can you tell the story behind that? Yeah, there's a, a really interesting story behind it. Um, basically, I was in Senegal doing research for the book and had been uh, – whole day in, in a town called Chess uh, interviewing different folks. 
and we were traveling back to the town Sali where I was staying and uh, it was kind of right around sunset and uh, we passed this amazing scene where these kids were playing uh, soccer in a dirt field right at sunset amidst these amazing massive baobab trees that look like something out of Harry Potter um, and you know it was an amazing visual scene and I thought at the time you know I, maybe I should stop and shoot some photos or video but I was really tired and my translator was really tired and so we didn't stop and kept going and I kind of kicked myself uh, that we hadn't stopped so several days later I said why don't we just go back to the same place at the same time of day maybe the kids will be playing again and I can shoot some photos and video and so we go back right around sunset and we find the the spot but nobody's playing and so I was kind of bummed and and so then we, we get out and we find uh, one of the kids and these kids were the sons of cattle herders that lived along the road um, in, in basically shacks and sold milk from the cattle. So they were very poor. I mean, this is a, a very desolate area. There's nothing there other than kind of baobab trees and, and dirt. Um, and so, you know, we go up to one of the kids and we say, you know, we, we drove by here the other day. We saw you guys playing. Um, you know, you're not playing today. Do you normally play? Why aren't you playing today? And he said, yeah, you know, we, we normally play every day, you know, starting in the afternoon until it gets dark and it's the highlight of our day. Um, but today, the one kid who has a ball uh, had to go to a, a chess for a funeral with his father, so we don't have a ball to play with. And, uh, and so we're sort of chatting, and while he's doing this, another kid runs up with this massive smile on his face, and he's holding this, like, half-deflated yellow rubber ball. Uh-huh. He'd somehow gotten his hands on the ball that the one kid owned, and he just rolls it out into the field, uh, and just the kids descend and just start <laughs> playing. And so I started shooting, and, and the, the photo that was on the cover was one of those photos that you take where uh, I shoot on burst, and even I could see, so you could see through the the lens that had been this really special moment where these two players came together and the light was perfect, but I didn't really know if I captured it. it kind of held my breath as I went to look to see if I, I did. And it, it, for me, really captures a lot of what the book's about. Yeah, it really does. Was it a situation where you mentioned it to your publisher, your editor, and, and they were sort of like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll take a look at it. And then they actually saw it. They're like, oh, wait, we can actually use this. Yeah, I, I actually I was pretty naive. So I didn't know that it was incredibly rare for a publisher to use a photo from the author. I knew that authors in general don't get a lot of say into what the cover of the book looks like. And so, I, yeah, I, I mentioned it to my, my editor, um, and he actually, he, I think he agreed, but even he felt a little bit weird of going to the cover designers. I think he kind of threw the photo at them and ran away. But he said, you know, they went through a bunch of other potential options and, and ended up using it, which I'm really happy about. Plus, you also shot some video mm-hmm. as well. What, was that with the idea that this was not just going to be about a written book? Yeah, you know, it, I didn't really have a concrete plan of how I was going to use the video at first. I just knew that this was going to be a visually stunning story. And I was going to do my best to communicate that on the page to readers. And I think it does, you know, provide a lot of detail about the scenes uh, that I was seeing, you know, again, and they were so diverse in West Africa, Qatar, Belgium. Um, But I also knew that video just provides just that much more of a, you know, connection for people that they can really experience what a place was like. So, you know, at first uh, I was just shooting, thinking Mike could maybe use this for marketing purposes or put together some little videos. And so I put together some video trailers and am trying to figure out if I can put together a, a short documentary now 
Um, but, you know, I would occur, I encourage listeners to, to watch them because I really do think they give you a, a real sense of what these places are like, where these kids were coming from, where they went in, in Doha, and how different they are. Before I forget, where can listeners see these videos? Yeah, if you go to my website, SebastianAbbott.com, um, there's a bunch of video trailers, a bunch of photos uh, as well, some of which appear in the book. Um, and so uh, please visit. I would love for folks to check it out. One T in Abbott, by the way, <laughs> E-B-O-T. Um, in terms of Belgium, we've mentioned it a couple of times why did you have to go to Belgium for this book? Yeah, so as you mentioned at the very beginning, um, so Qatar was basically trying to figure out what they would do with these kids they found in Africa. Um, by the time the first class of kids were finishing the academy, approaching the age of 18, which is traditionally when kids finish uh, soccer academies. And, uh, and so it's tough to make the jump from an academy to a top club in the world um, for many 18-year-olds. It happens occasionally. Folks like Messi, Neymar, who are able to kind of really perform at an incredibly high level when they're that young. But most players need a few years of professional experience at potentially a lower level before they're ready to make that jump. And so Qatar, because they have a lot of money, decided what they would do is go buy a club that they could basically uh, serve as a farm team for these African kids. And so they looked around and they decided to buy uh, this team Eupen uh, in, in a little town in Belgium called, called Eupen. And it was kind of an amazing story because all of a sudden, you know, the folks who lived in this town of 20,000 people woke up one morning and their local club, the Pandas, was owned by some Middle Eastern country they'd never heard of and filled with African teenagers. And so you can imagine that it created quite an uproar and not everyone was happy about this. One of the supporters groups actually boycotted for a while. And so, but that was a really fun reporting experience for me is spending time in this little town, which is so small that after a week, everybody pretty much knows who you are and you walk down the street and they're waving to you. And, and so it was, uh, again, interesting because it was so different from Qatar, so different from West Africa. I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but are you still in touch with any of the kids from the book? Yeah, I, I'm in touch with all of them. And, uh, you know, uh, and so they're, they're excited for the book to come out and, and you know, see how it turned out. Um, and, and to be honest, you know, not, not all of the kids in this program have succeeded. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do now uh, is try and figure out how to help a few of them um, because, you know, uh, one of the important things for me about this book was that it wasn't just going to tell the story of kids who made it. As, as you said before, you know, Neymar, Messi, Coutinho, these are the stories we often focus on, the ones who, you know, the superstars who make it and play in the biggest leagues in the world. We watch every weekend on TV. But it's it's much rarer that fans of the game hear about the millions of kids because uh, it is millions because you know so many kids around the world dream of becoming a star in Europe the millions of kids that pin all of their dreams on on making it as a star in Europe and never do and so you know sadly which is is inevitable because it's a numbers game sadly some of these kids didn't make it and so I've been in touch with them trying to figure out how to help them and and for not some of them it's probably not going to be soccer at all it may be going vocational school or something right. like that um, as you said earlier, this is the largest talent search in the history of sports. Mm -hmm. In the end, would you call the Football Dreams Project a success? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it's a, and it's a it's a complicated question and a complicated answer because um, the program itself was, I think, multifaceted in terms of its goals, and the goals kind of evolved over time. But if I were to sort of think about whether it's success, it just it depends on which one of those goals you're kind of really looking at. One of the goals was to try and produce a world-class cuttery national team. One of the goals was to try and find the next Messi, you know, a superstar who could kind of storm the world stage. And the other goal, according to Qatar, was to try and help African kids who, you know, dream of becoming a professional in Europe and to get them there. You know, I think from the perspective of trying to produce a world-class Qatari national team, I think it's pretty easy to call that a failure because, you know, Qatar once again failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup meaning that they will then uh, debut uh, in 2022 when they host it for the first time. Um, and they're still sort of near the bottoms of FIFA's top 100 ranking. So I don't think that worked out. You know, in terms of, of finding the next Messi, you know, they found some kids that definitely uh, are good and, and uh, a few who have made it to, to top leagues. Um, but they're still kind of looking for that once-in-a-generation player um, and still hoping that they, they could potentially produce him. And then in terms of, of, of helping kids, you know, Qatar uh, definitely projects us as a humanitarian program, and there's no doubt that it did help uh, kids. But because, uh, you know, soccer is a numbers game and it's so hard to spot which kids are the ones who are going to make it, inevitably a bunch of them didn't. And so um, from a humanitarian perspective, it's sort of a mixed story. Uh, they helped some kids. There's a bunch of kids that ended up unhappy, and they spent a huge amount of money on this program, over $100 million. So if you're looking at it strictly from a humanitarian program, is that the best way to spend $100 million? Where can people buy this book? What's your Twitter handle? Uh, my Twitter handle is Seb Abbott, um, and people can buy the book you know, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, um, uh, pretty much anywhere books are sold when it it goes on sale March 6th, um, and, uh, and so I hope people buy it and read it, and I look forward to hearing what people think. The book is called The Away Game, The Epic Search for Soccer's Next Superstars. It's terrific. I've read it. I love it. Sebastian, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Steve Nash and Sebastian Abbott, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray. That's available on the SITV streaming channel on Amazon, where you can get a free seven-day trial. Recent guests include Danny Hewson, Andrew Das, Jeff Agus, and Tom Penn. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.